So this piece is titled The Southern Gothic and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is to coincide with the 45th anniversary of the film, which was released in the United States about a week ago. Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974 essentially can be classified as a Southern Gothic by exploring the film's characters, structure, setting, and elements of story by comparing it to such classics as Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood and William Faulkner's As They Lay Dying. By looking at this legendary cult film that is both honored for its daring filmmaking and also vilified for its relentless violence and depravity. This discussion will showcase that this gruesome film, which some critics consider as one of the very first slasher picks, is just on par with the two classics that I mentioned of Gothic literature. In all three of these works, characters are on a returning journey to home. In As I Lay Dying, the Bundren family journey to take their dying mother, Addie, across the desolate land of Mississippi to bury her in Jefferson. In Wise Blood, Hazel Motes is traveling back from the war on a train ride back to his hometown. The children in Texas Chainsaw Massacre are also on a journey. In all three stories, situations occur that befall upon the characters sending them onto another journey that delays the way. However, in Hooper's 1974 classic, this detour is the most gruesome. This midnight cult grindhouse classic of video nastiness is really a breathtaking tale of the highest art. This film has managed to grow into something of mythic proportions. Some might argue that its reputation is more notorious than the film itself. Stephen Koch of Harper's Magazine said this of Hooper's film back in an issue in 1976. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a vile little piece of sick crap. It is a film with literally nothing to recommend it. Nothing but a hysterically paced slapdash, imbecile concoction of cannibalism, voodoo, astrology, sundry hippie-esque cults, and unrelenting sadistic violence as extreme and hideous as a complete lack of imagination can possibly make it. Now that was a prime example of what the mainstream film critic thought of the film. But for a teenager who grew up in a small Midwestern town that was fed a diet of classic universal monsters, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, and Jason Voorhees, it had an entirely different kind of mystique. There were the stories around the film that one would hear from friends and parents, like that it's the scariest movie of all time. The artwork on the VHX box taunted from the bottom shelf in the local video store horror section alongside all the other slasher classics containing titles like Driller Killer and Faces of Death. It said, Rent me if you dare, boy. The image was particularly gruesome. It showed Leatherface armed with his weapon of choice, a chainsaw running through the darkness out of a farmhouse, suspended in oblivion. In the background, a woman screamed silently in a red shirt about to be impaled on a meat hook. And then there was the lore around the film that this was something that actually happened. Now, I had only seen clips of Texas Chainsaw Massacre that were featured in a wonderful horror film anthology, Terror in the Isles, hosted by Donald Pleasance of Halloween and Nancy Allen from Carrie and Dressed to Kill. 
Now the time had come to see this horror film that had so much sordid history surrounding it. But the first thing that the viewer is assaulted with is a voiceover that Makita Brotman calls a fairy tale warning in her essay, Once Upon a Time in Texas, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre as Inverted Fairy Tale. The film, which you are about to see, is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, the plot of the film is very basic, but it's an effective narrative. In fact, it almost acts like a fairy tale. Sally Franklin and their friends are traveling through the Texas countryside when they hear a news report that there have been some disturbances at the cemetery where their grandparents were buried. But somebody's been robbing the graves. And once Sally and Franklin discover that their grandparents' grave is not disturbed, they make way for the farmhouse they were raised in. However, on their journey, they come across a hitchhiker along the side of the road after passing the old slaughterhouse. Now, Cooper makes it very clear to the audience that Sally and her friends are hippies by their mannerisms and their dress. The other woman is fascinated by astrology that she rambles on to each member in the van. But the garb of the hitchhiker is that of a feral nomad. He wears regular clothes, but also is adorned with an animal fur bag that he keeps his peculiar belongings in. His hair is unkept, and a nasty birthmark mars his face. Because they are hippies and have the free love mentality, we already know that they're going to let him in the van. Upon seeing him, Franklin says, We just picked up Dracula. Now the hitchhiker threatens Franklin with a razor by cutting his arm. He flees the van and rubs his blood on the side of the van in a barbaric symbol. It marks the inhabitants of the van. The van runs low on gas, and they head to Sally and Franklin's childhood home. Now, while looking for a watering hole to distract them for an hour, the faint roar of a generator sends Pam and Kirk searching a neighborhood farmhouse that is run down as Sally's home, family home's looking for gasoline. Now, one by one, the crazed lunatics inside the farmhouse kill Sally's friends like cattle. Sally goes through the night of hell at the hands of the horrific family of killers. And in the morning, she flees in terror to escape the clutches of her captors, and her screams of madness and laughter fade out the film. Now, what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre shares with themes of Southern Gothic are primarily its sense of a desolate location, its eccentric characters, the importance of family, and finally, how an agricultural business has been industrialized itself at the expense of its worth workers. In Gothic, Fred Botting says, the disjointed perspective William Faulkner's and Flannery O'Connor's fictions disclose a grotesque and absurd world seen through the eyes of misfits, freaks, and malcontents 
a world of quiet, desperate haunting. Now, Southern Gothic is barely Gothic in any European sense. Even Poe's terrors and horrors seem extreme in respect of the gently haunted reality of class, racial, and familial tensions. Now, changes in American modernity, its speed, and urbanization shadowing a world whose social fabric unravels in the shade of porches and long-gone family dramas of a way of life that it seems to have forgotten how to die. The film's setting is a small town in Texas, and Hooper does an excellent job of letting the audience know that it's Texas, and that unlike the traditional Gothic with its cold, desolate, foggy castles, it's sweltering hot there. The film practically sweats in every frame. His first establishing shot after the warning is the oppressive Texas sun shining down on two sun-baked corpses propped up on a cemetery cross in a grossly humorous fashion. Now, one has their legs spread on the bars of the cross, and the other one's riding piggyback. And the entire film has an element of lawlessness and chaos. Other than the scene in which Sally and company are checking out the graveyard, there is no representation of an authority figure whatsoever. In his essay, The Idea of Apocalypse in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Christopher Sherritt argues that the film is about a world dissolving into primordial chaos, set in an archetypal wasteland where the sustaining forces of civilization are not operative. The cannibal motif, which occurs in a number of films following Hooper's success, suggests a number of ideas about the resuscitation of primitive culture that need to be dealt with in detail. The profane element of the film is the localization of the cataclysm that is precisely in the historical situation of the American Southwest in the late 20th century. Now, this is the same thing as Faulkner situating his novel in the midst of rural Mississippi in the earliest parts of the 20th century, or O'Connor that sends Hazel Motes on a blasphemous journey in the wilds of a small town in post-World War II Tennessee. But when brought into the farmhouse of the sadistic killers, from Pam's point of view, we see a vast array of skulls and bones, both human and animal, in what I shall dub the trophy room. Now, upon a recent viewing of the film, I counted at least 10 human skulls scattered throughout the room. Early on, there's a shot of the collection of cars under a camouflage netting that hints to past victims. And Hooper makes the landscape of Texas an apocalyptic wasteland of broken-down farmhouses, barren riverbeds, and dingy gas stations. There is blight all over this rural landscape. As in most horror films, the idea of this being a real place is far from the truth. Even the four thorny woods that Sally runs through to escape Leatherface are more of a nightmare than nighttime. Now, the characters of the film are just as eccentric as those from the pages of O'Connor or Faulkner. There is the gleefully demented cook who gets so much relish when he starts smacking Sally with the broom from his store. However, he gets no pleasure in killing. Now, that pleasure is reserved for the work of the hitchhiker, Leatherface, and Grandpa. Now, unlike the kids who split up for their own explorations, this family stays together. They even have time to have a sit-down dinner for every member of the family. 
and work is an important aspect of this family of killers. Now, since an automated gun is taken over for the use of a man to swing a sledgehammer, these killers are left without jobs. So what we have is a microcosm of a class war going on in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Working class is taking out the middle class in the most primal way possible. They need a creative release to practice the only skills that they know how. In an earlier scene, the hitchhiker and Franklin get involved in a heated discussion about how the old ways of using a sledge to deliver the killing blow is better than using a gun that shoots a killing bolt into a cow's skull. Franklin contemplates that the gun is better. However, the hitchhiker says, oh no, with the new way, people would put out of jobs. Now both Franklin and the hitchhiker have kin that worked at the old slaughterhouse, and both the hitchhiker and his brother Leatherface are former workers of the closed down facility. However, we learn that Leatherface is and still using those old ways to dispatch his victims. And Hooper makes a very distinct difference in the coding of the characters in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Next, we're going to look at the way they're dressed, their mannerisms and speech patterns that Sally and Franklin and their friends have that they're obviously educated middle class. They're dressed for leisure activities. They're on vacation. Sally and Pam are dressed very casual and also revealing Neither wears a bra, because after all, this is the early 70s, and Pam wears sandals on her feet, and all of them are dressed for play, not work. But on the other hand, the family of the cannibalistic killers is dressed specifically for work. Cook wears coveralls while he attends the gas station and the barbecue place. Leatherface wears an apron and work clothes. He also sports a tie to his killing ensemble, and all the members of the cannibalistic clan wear heavy work boots. By their dialect, it is clear that they are not as educated as these hippies in the van. Now, these men definitely have a job to do across the Texas countryside, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre shows the working class preying upon the educated, leisured middle class and slaughtering them in a most gruesome way. Now, Robin Wood argues that Leatherface and his family are oppressed by industrial capitalism. They're out-of-work slaughterhouse workers whose skills are rendered obsolete by technology, and that the cannibalism is a logical extension and a proper metaphor for consumerism in a capitalist society. Famed horror director and writer Clive Barker says... What Toby Hooper did with this film was signal to his audience that he didn't give a shit for their finer feelings. This picture becomes an assault. Its narrative is minimal. Its visuals are grittily real. To complete the achievement, Hooper created Leatherface and his family characters whose relentless, ironic, obsessive malevolence is uniquely modern. Now, most monsters of the past had moments of regret or fear, but these beasts know neither. In one scene, particular occurs when Leatherface has finished with his victim. He sits down to take a breather. It's a telling scene because it's one moment that the audience has shown a private window 
of this character. He rests momentarily while holding his head. It reveals to the audience that even though he enjoys what he does, the action is so very physical. From viewing this moment in the film, one gets the idea of how much brute force must be used to kill someone with your bare hands. The act of killing your victims and then preparing them for a meal is a very laborious task. His final action, he licks his disgusting lips and reveals his jagged teeth so used to eating human flesh.